0: Hey, good morning, Plum Creek. I want to welcome all of you here today, especially if you happen to be visiting with us. It was great to celebrate Easter last Sunday. It's also great to be together again today. And for about a month now, we've been in this sermon series called Crucial Conversations. And every week during this series, we're going back to the life of Jesus, and we're listening in on several conversations that Jesus had with different people and so far, we've looked at Nicodemus, a rich young man, a Samaritan woman, and those two men on the road to Emmaus. And each of these conversations turned out to be a major turning point for the people involved. And really, that's how it works for everybody. When you have a real encounter with Jesus, He will change your life forever if you let it. Now, like last week, today's conversation takes place after Jesus rose from the dead, but before he ascended into heaven. And you may have noticed the title of today's sermon. It's called, Jesus and the Spectacular Failure. And just to be clear, we're not talking about a time when Jesus failed because he didn't do failure. We're talking about a person who was a failure, a spectacular failure. And I was trying to think about people from our time who had failed in, in a big or a public way, and from this past week, an obvious choice would be Sergio Garcia, but I don't want to talk about him this morning. It's too soon, too soon. So I thought of someone else. I remember this poor guy from the first World Series that I ever watched on TV. We have a picture of the exact moment when this failure happened. Anybody recognize this guy? A few of you got it right. That's Bill Buckner, Red Sox first baseman. And this is the 1986 World Series. Now, just in case you haven't heard of Bill Buckner, I'll tell you what he's known for. Here's the plot. Boston was one out away from their first World Series title in 68 years. It was the bottom of the 10th inning. They were ahead 5-3, to three. so things were looking really good for Red Sox fans. A few minutes later, though, the situation had changed dramatically. The Mets tied the game at 5-5. Five five. Mookie Wilson is at the plate for the Mets. He's facing a full count, and then he hits a slow roller in the direction of first base right to Bill Buckner. Should have been an easy play, but for whatever reason, the ball rolls right through Buckner's legs. The Mets go on to win the game. Then they also win game seven, and they steal that World Series away from the Red Sox. Now, to be honest, I feel a little guilty even mentioning this story because, really, Bill Buckner just made a mistake. I don't think it's fair to call this a spectacular failure. But the truth is, that's exactly how some of the Red Sox fans reacted. Buckner got all kinds of abuse for this. For years and years. And even though he had over 2,700 hits in his career, even though he won a batting title, many people only remember him for this one disastrous error. Now, the good news is, based on some interviews I've seen, uh, it looks like Buckner is dealing with this legacy pretty well these days. Uh, He's even been able to laugh about it. But here's the question I have for all of us. In the aftermath of our failures... Even spectacular failures. How do you come back from that? Is it even possible? And you might say, it depends on what it was. Well, let's, let's put it this way. What if your failure was different than Buckner's? What if yours wasn't a mistake? What if it was intentional? Maybe you made a promise and then you didn't keep it. Or maybe you caused pain for someone who should have been able to trust you. Or, or maybe you damaged the relationship between yourself and others, or between yourself and God. If that's the case, then what do you do? How do you come back from that? And then how does God look at you? How does He respond? Well, we're going to get some very helpful answers to those questions this morning. In today's story, we're looking at Simon Peter, one of the most prominent disciples of Jesus. And a lot of us know at least a little about Peter, but to make sure we're on the same page, let's paint a picture of this guy. How would you describe Simon Peter? Well, if you wanted to put a positive spin on it, you might call him action-oriented. If you wanted to be more critical, though, you might call him an impulsive hothead. And the reality is, Both of those things are true. Peter did not like to sit quietly with his mouth shut. He was often the first one to speak up and the first one to take action. You might call him a ready-fire-aim kind of guy. For example, on the night when Jesus walked on water, who was it that stepped out of the boat and walked out to Jesus? It was Peter. And then later, on the night when Jesus was arrested, Who was it that pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers? It was Peter. Now, you'd have a hard time finding a more courageous guy in the New Testament, but there was a downside to Peter's temperament. Uh, Sometimes being impulsive got him into trouble. He would say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing because he just wasn't thinking And then Jesus really had to get on him from time to time. Peter's life with Jesus was kind of a roller coaster. he'd, He'd be courageous, but then he would also be impetuous. He'd come up with something amazing, and then he'd follow up with a completely boneheaded move. And by the way, how many of us can relate to that? We have these moments of temporary greatness, and then before you know it, boom, there's another failure. It's pretty frustrating, isn't it? And the worst is when we hit those extreme low points, those spectacular failures, the the times when you hit rock bottom. For Peter, his low point was on the night Jesus was arrested, shortly before the crucifixion. And many of you know what happened. After Jesus' arrest, he was taken before the high priest for interrogation. Peter was standing outside, he was on the fringes. He was anxious and he was scared, but you would hope that he would be loyal to Jesus, right? It didn't turn out that way, though. At one point, Peter is standing in the courtyard, he's by this charcoal fire, and this servant girl walks up to him and she says, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? What does Peter say next? He replies, I am not. I am not. An outright denial of any connection to Jesus. Now, that would have been a bad thing for any of the disciples to do, but this was especially outrageous coming from Peter for three reasons. First, Peter wasn't just one of the twelve. He was one of the three. Jesus had this inner circle of disciples. And in that circle was only Peter, James, and John. Those three had a special relationship with Jesus. They were included in certain things when others were left out. But there's a second reason why his denial was so maddening. See, Peter was the one who swore that he would never let Jesus down. Earlier that same evening at the Last Supper, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, All of you will fall away on account of me. But you know what Peter said? Peter answered him, No, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Of course, Jesus knew what was coming. And he says, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now that would have been a good time for Peter to keep his mouth shut. But we know that's not his style, right? So Peter said to Jesus, no, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's so emphatic. He's so confident. And in that moment, I really believe Peter had good intentions, but you and I know he didn't live up to his good intentions. First, he denies Jesus in front of that servant girl. You know, if it happened just once, we might understand a little better. We could just pass it off and call it a moment of weakness. But here's the third reason why Peter's denial was so outrageous. He denied Jesus not once, but three times, back to back to back. And at that point, it's not really a moment of weakness. It's not a mere mistake. It's an intentional decision to turn his back on his Lord. Now, it didn't take long before Peter felt terrible about this. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus was led into that courtyard immediately after the third denial. And Jesus turned, and he looked at Peter. And their eyes met, and immediately Peter got it. He knew what he had done. He immediately ran away and wept bitter tears. So that was it. That was Peter's spectacular failure. And we can look back on that and say, Peter, what were you thinking? But the truth is, we can relate to this a little more than we'd like to admit. I heard a preacher named Jake Barker say that Peter just fell into a pattern that we've all followed at one point or another. It's a pattern that's common to everyone, and it goes like this. I said I wouldn't, then I did, and now what? I said I wouldn't, then I did, and now what? Now, if we thought about that for a minute, I'm sure we could come up with all kinds of examples of where we've seen this pattern in our lives. New Year's resolutions would be one example. Sometimes the pattern shows up in trivial ways, but other times it's more serious. I said I would go back to that bad habit. I said I would not go back to that bad habit, but then I did or I said I wouldn't go back to that bad relationship, and then I did, or I said I wouldn't lose my temper. I said I wouldn't cross that line again. This pattern crops up far too often. I said I wouldn't, then I did, and then there's that question at the end. Now what? So, yeah, I blew it. I didn't live up to who I should be, but then how do I move on? Is it possible to come back from that? And most importantly, what does God think of me? Now what? Will He give me another chance or have I run out of chances? That's why today's story is so important. We find out how God responds after a spectacular failure. We pick up this part of the story in John chapter 21. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can go ahead and turn there. And I'll give you a summary of what's happening in the early part of this chapter. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's made a few appearances, but he's not really around as much as he used to be. And on this particular day, several of the disciples are together, and they're up in Galilee in the northern part of the country. That's where they grew up. And it seems like they're not quite sure what to do next. They're standing around looking at each other, and then guess who speaks up? Yeah, it's Peter. Peter says, well, guys, I'm going fishing. And that kind of makes sense because when you're not sure what to do, you tend to fall back on what you know. And several of those disciples were fishermen before they met Jesus. So the others say, sounds good to me. And they get in a boat and they go out on the lake. But really, they're not having a good day. They're not really catching fish. Then all of a sudden, they hear a voice from the shore. This man tells them to cast their net over on the other side of the boat. And they're like, well, what do we have to lose? And they do it. Right away, their net is so full of fish, they're not able to haul it in. And something very similar had happened one time before. You can read about it in Luke chapter 5. In that story... Jesus gave some of these same men advice about fishing. And that time, too, they ended up with this huge catch of fish. And the disciple named John was around for both of those miracles. So when it happened a second time, it all clicked for him. And John looks at Peter and he says, that's not some random stranger on the shore over there. That is Jesus. And you know what happens next, right? Simon Peter is about to go into action mode He doesn't hang back and talk this over with John. He he doesn't even wait to help pull in the fish. Peter dives into the water with his clothes on and furiously starts swimming to the shore. He's racing to Jesus because he doesn't want to miss a chance to connect with him. See, Peter knows that he and Jesus need to talk. It's time for a crucial conversation. Well, Peter swims to the shore, the other disciples eventually catch up, and they all have breakfast together. But then, Peter and Jesus step aside to have a one-on-one conversation. Let's jump into John 21 here, starting at verse 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Now, let's remember the significance of this conversation. Peter hasn't had the chance to sit down and talk with Jesus like this since his spectacular failure. And I can't imagine the anxiety of wondering what Jesus would say to him. But in this verse, Jesus starts off with a question. And it seems like kind of a strange question, right? Simon, do you love me more than these? In other words, do you love me more than the other disciples do? Now, why would Jesus say that? Is he running in some kind of contest to see who loves him the most? No, it's actually very logical when you think about it. What was it that Peter claimed right before he denied Jesus? He said, even if the other disciples fall away, I will never fall away. They may fail you, but I won't fail you. My love, my commitment, it's greater. Now, that was a pretty audacious claim, and he proved he couldn't live up to that claim. So, with that question, Jesus is kind of bringing up the elephant in the room, and we can understand how this would have been very painful for Peter. But here's the irony. By this point, it's very possible that Peter did have a deeper love for Jesus than the other disciples and you may ask, how so? Well, it goes back to something that Jesus said early in His ministry. Jesus said, those who are forgiven much, love much. But those who are forgiven little, love little. And what does that mean? Well, it's like this. If God offers you forgiveness, but you've always kind of thought you're, you're not really that bad of a person, well, then you won't feel like you had that much to be forgiven for, and that won't seem like that great of a gift, and and then you're not going to be that grateful, right? But then what if you are convinced that you have become a spectacular failure and, and that you deserve whatever punishment God would give you up to and including an eternity in hell? Well, if that's the case, and then God allows you to escape that punishment, and He treats you kindly instead, how will you respond? You might sound like one of those aliens from the Toy Story movies. You'll be like, you have saved my life. I am eternally grateful. See, when, when you know that you deserve condemnation, and God forgives you instead, well, your natural response is great love, deep gratitude. So now back to Peter. Do you think he had come to terms with the seriousness of his sin? I believe he had. Right after his denials, when Peter locked eyes with Jesus, he knew he had done something dreadful. It's possible that he even remembered what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 10. Back there, Jesus says, so Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But then listen to this. Jesus said, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Sounds like a promise, doesn't it? Peter would have heard that promise. And if Jesus gave Peter exactly what he deserved, their relationship would be over forever forever. That's why Peter ran away weeping. He got it. He came to the realization of the depth of his own sin. And now here's what we need to ask ourselves today. Have we followed the example of Peter here? Do we know the seriousness of our sin? Have we come to that place of weeping and mourning over our moral and spiritual failures? It's possible that you have. It's also possible that you've played a very popular game called the Sin Comparison Game. This was another thing that I heard from Jake Barker, and it's also so true. The Sin Comparison Game works like this. First, you look at your own mess. You look at all those places where you didn't live up to to be the person you should be, and you say, yep, that's not good. Then here's what you do next. You look around and you find someone who, in your opinion, is a little more guilty than you are. You find this person who sins more frequently than you do, or, or maybe some of their sins just seem especially heinous. And then when you compare yourself to them, it makes you feel better because you can say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm a notch above that guy, and, and at least I haven't sunk to her level. And you wouldn't necessarily say this, but you're kind of hoping that God notices. You're, you're not really a major league center. You're just in the minor leagues. But whenever we play that game, all we're doing is we're just demonstrating how messed up our thinking is. That kind of thinking says, you know, I'm a pretty good person overall. I just need a little help from God. But if that's our attitude, we will never learn to love God as deeply as we should. See, the truth is, all of us are more sinful than we'd like to think. And even our so-called little sins are more damaging than we'd care to admit. You may have heard what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So, what do we earn as a result of our sin? We earn the punishment of death. That's the wages. And that is completely true, but sometimes we, we struggle with that idea because it doesn't always seem like the punishment fits the crime. Sure, if you're talking about first-degree murder, yeah, the wages for that sin should be death. That, that makes sense. But what about gossip? Should God really dish out the death penalty when you talk bad about someone behind their back? Is that fair? Well, there's a very important verse over in James chapter 2. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So now what does that mean? Well, that means just one sin is enough to turn you into a sinner. Whatever your sin happened to be. And when you break just one law, that's enough to turn you into a lawbreaker, whichever one of God's laws you broke. Now, I do have to point out here different sins do have different levels of consequences. A murder brings much more pain and devastation than a person who just stole a few office supplies from work. But James is telling us. There's no such thing as a little sin. Every sin is an act of rebellion against God. Every sin is enough to break the relationship between us and God. That's why the wages of sin is death. He's perfect. We are flawed. And he would not be perfect if he just overlooked our sin. He would not be good if he said, ah, it's okay. We'll just pretend that it never happened. We'll just erase your sin without any punishment. There's no need for justice. That would not be a good God. So yes, the wages of murder is death. But the wages of hatred is also death. The wages of gossip is death. The wages of greed is death. The wages of lust is death. The wages of envy is death. So I have to ask again have we come to terms with the seriousness of our sin. This is essential because we'll never appreciate the beauty of God's grace until we know the depth of our sin. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, specifically mine, and for yours. Your specific sins sent him to the cross. So if we're going to love God deeply, which, according to Jesus, is the most important command, the greatest commandment in all of Scripture, then we have to know how much damage our sin has caused to ourselves and to others and to God Himself. We have to know how desperately we need forgiveness. Jesus helped Peter understand that. Let's jump back into that conversation in John 21. Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. You see the implication there, don't you? It's a direct correlation to Peter's three denials. And you can see that Peter gets the message. After that third question from Jesus, Peter's getting upset. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So what was Jesus doing here? Was he taking Peter to a place of guilt Actually, no. Jesus was leading Peter past the place of guilt to restoration. And here today, we need Jesus to do the same thing for us. We need Jesus to teach us how to respond to our sin. So let's think about it this way. Let's say, I get it. I, I, I've come to the knowledge that I am a rotten sinner. Well, what am I supposed to do with that knowledge? Uh, Should I walk around feeling ashamed? Should I just keep beating myself up over my failures for the rest of my life? Well, actually, no, that's not productive. According to Scripture, godly sorrow is the appropriate response to sin. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's a pretty big difference, isn't it? So obviously, the next question is, how do I know that my sorrow is the right kind? Well, here's the distinction. With worldly sorrow, you are upset about your sin, but really, you're just focused on yourself. You're thinking, okay, now how do I get out of this mess? And you know where this me focus takes you? You got two possible paths worldly sorrow can lead to self-hatred. But it can also lead to just feeling numb. Some people, they, they fall into this pit of shame and guilt, and that is a miserable place to be. But not everyone does that. Others go to this other place where, where they're saying, yeah, I blew it, so it's too late for me now. Why should I care at this point? It's kind of a numbness. But you know, in the end, Both of those paths lead to the same destination. Worldly sorrow leads to diving deeper into sin. We already talked about where sin leads, right? Sin leads to death. All of Scripture is in agreement on this. Sin leads to death. But now, what about the other side? What does godly sorrow look like? Well, with godly sorrow, you're also upset but you're upset that you have wronged God. Instead of a me focus, you're learning to look beyond yourself. You're learning to look to God. And then where does that lead? Godly sorrow leads to conviction. Conviction is not just an empty shame. It's, it's, it means you're, you're willing to make a real change. And so conviction leads to repentance repentance is where you turn away from your sin you do a 180 and you stop following the evil desires in your heart wherever they lead you and you start following where god leads that's repentance and then like we saw in that verse repentance leads to salvation it's when you come to jesus and you bring him everything you bring your whole heart you bring your past you bring your failures and you give it all to him And you say, Jesus, I'm yours. My life, my future, it's all in your hands. And when you do that, he will bring you to that place of restoration. Where your sin has been erased and where you get what you don't deserve. Instead of punishment, you get a restored relationship with God that goes on forever. So do you see the hope for all of us in this crucial conversation? Peter knew exactly what he deserved. Uh, Jesus laid it out for him pretty clearly. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But after that spectacular failure, Peter ran to Jesus. And what did he find? Was it condemnation? Was it a well-deserved guilt trip? No. Jesus gave Peter the chance to reestablish their relationship to restore the love between them. And you know, there's something we haven't talked about yet here. When Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, how did Jesus respond? He said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Now, what was Jesus saying there? Well, this is just flat out amazing. Jesus is about to return to heaven. And he was establishing his church to carry on his work. And right here in John 21, right after breakfast, on the beach, Jesus commissions Peter to be a leader and a shepherd for his church. Jesus did not give Peter the punishment he deserved. Instead, he gave Peter a purpose. So now earlier we talked about that pattern of failure. I said I wouldn't, but then I did, and now what? Well, right here, we see what God wants to do in the aftermath of a spectacular failure. It's a new pattern, and it's what could happen after we ask, now what? And it looks like this. Godly sorrow leads to conviction, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to purpose. Now, if you know the rest of Peter's story, you know that he did live out the purpose Jesus gave him. He did become a leader in the church. In fact, on the day the church started, Peter was the one to get up and preach. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus on that day, and they were baptized. From there, Peter continued to preach and teach and lead people to Jesus. It's really one of the most amazing turnaround stories in the whole Bible. But just to wrap this up, let's look at two more verses towards the end of the crucial conversation here. Let's look at what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. You know what Jesus is talking about there? What did he mean about Peter stretching out his hands and being carried where he doesn't want to go? Well, John makes it clear in verse 19. Jesus was talking about how Peter would die. Peter would later die by crucifixion. We don't specifically read about it in the Bible, but church history confirms it. And you know what's fascinating about that? Remember, back before Jesus went to that cross... Peter made his big claim. He said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Just hours after Peter said that, he proved he wasn't ready to die for Jesus. He proved that his love and his loyalty and his commitment were just too weak at that point. But then by the end of his life, after Peter had been forgiven for that spectacular failure, After Peter had been restored and and then he goes on to live a life of purpose for God's kingdom, he was a different man, wasn't he? By the end, Peter was ready not only to speak up for Jesus, but to die for him. He followed Jesus all the way to the end. See, it is true. Those who are forgiven much love much. And you know what? Peter's story can be your story and my story it is possible to come back after a failure that's what god wants for you he's willing to do that for you if you let him let's pray heavenly father i thank you so much for your mercy for the fact that you don't give us what we do deserve the punishment that that we've earned i also thank you for your grace That you do give us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness, salvation. You've made that available to all of us. God, I thank you most of all for Jesus. Jesus made that grace possible by that sacrifice which proved your love for us. So Lord, I, I pray that we will come to terms with the seriousness and the depth of our sin. We'll have the right kind of sorrow and grief over that. But then, I pray that you'll bring us to that place of restoration where we are yours, we know we're yours, and our relationship with you is healed, and it's going to go on forever. I pray that for every person in this room. God, I know we have to surrender to that. Lord, help us to uh, think clearly today. Help us to be absolutely sure there's nothing in this life that compares with you. And we would trade this whole world, we'd give it all away, as long as we can have you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.